This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the host of an Airbnb experience where I teach you how to interrogate tech CEOs from home. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, who was very kind to come on and talk to me from his home. He's been on the show many times before. I really enjoy talking to him, but I wanted to have him back because Airbnb is one of the tech companies most impacted by COVID-19. Earlier this month, Brian told his employees that Airbnb expected to make half as much money in 2020 as it did in 2019, and that 25% of the workforce would be laid off. The timing is especially bad because Airbnb was expected to go public this year. Brian, welcome back to Recode Decode. Oh, thank you, Kara. Thanks for having me back. So there's so much stuff I want to talk about, but I think I'd oh, love yeah. you just to start uh, overall to talk about you. You had just been in a meeting with your employees, correct? Uh, talking about have. sort of how you, what what's going on. Why don't you tell us what you told them or some of it or part of it? I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you what I can. Um, we just came through like the most harrowing, intense nine weeks since we started the company. And it culminated with this really ending a chapter kind of two weeks ago where we had to you know, say goodbye to 1,900 employees. It was, and so, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I gave people a couple weeks to process it. Um, and today was really the two week period since that, since the layoff. And uh, we all came back together to talk about what we're going to do next. And I'll, I'll, a couple things I said, you know, we ended the last chapter None of you were kind of here for the first chapter, but you know we have to rebuild this company. You know the business is half the size it was, and uh, and and we have to rebuild. And you're going to help me rebuild, and we're going to rebuild by going back to our roots. You know we have not as many people, not as many resources we used to have. So when you're in a crisis, it really brings you clarity. And the clarity that I had was just we kind of looked into what makes Airbnb truly special. You know, when we were having these really difficult times, we got a lot of support from people and we realized people really want this company to exist. And the reason they want us to exist is because of the connection that people have, Airbnb at its best. And I said, when we started Airbnb, it was about belonging and connection. And we're going back to our roots, back to the basics, and back to what makes Airbnb truly special. It's the everyday people that are hosts, that offer their homes and share experiences. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do that by doing a couple things. The first is, you know, people are still traveling, but they don't want to get on airplanes. And they don't want to cross the border and go to another country. But after nine or 10 weeks, let's take it here in the United States, people are dying to get out of their house. So they actually do want to travel, but they want to get in a car. And they want to go somewhere really close. And so our business used to be mostly people going more than 300 miles. And now... Uh, you know, the vast majority of business are people going in a car ride of less than five hours, and about half of them are going only a couple hours. So we're going to focus on nearby stays, you know, stays nearby. And those are very often more last minute. They're in less urban areas. So we're seeing a huge surge in demand for less urban areas. We're having, we have a lot less demand in cities. So basically a lot of people are leaving cities. And sometimes they're going longer. So they're going for like a month at a time or a few weeks because if they're sheltering in place, they're like, if I'm going to work from home, I don't really want to work from this home. I want to be less tethered. So that's the first thing that we're going to do. And we're actually seeing a lot of opportunities there. And the second is going back to this idea of connection. I think people still want to connect. They just don't want to connect 
really up close. And so we created this thing called online experiences. As you know, we have Airbnb experiences. And in the middle of pa- the pandemic, you know, we don't want to be on the wrong side of social distancing. So we're like, we're going to pause Airbnb experiences. So we paused them. We did listening sessions and hosts said they still want to offer them online. And we were like, what do you mean online? And we really thought about it and we basically created this new thing called online experiences. And it's actually growing way faster than the regular experiences ever did because you kind of have the whole world of demand. And so it's kind of a new category, kind of in between like a real life experience and kind of Netflix because it's, it's digital, but it's, it's interactive. All right. And so those are two things we're doing. All right, so I want to talk about each of those in detail, but yeah. let's talk first about the last nine weeks. So oh, yeah. you, last time we talked, you had a controversy around a, a, a house party, yeah, um, and you were very forthright talking about what was going on. And those were the kind of issues you were dealing with, is crazy yes. growth, people using yeah. your service. You had issues around regulatory that are ongoing, yeah. have been ongoing. Um, but it has to do a lot with cities, and that was yeah. your business, people going to whatever city they were in or traveling to Amsterdam or Paris or whatever. And it wasn't you know, vacation homes which I think is what you're talking about, essentially. Talk a little bit about the last nine weeks. When it first started, how do you judge your reaction? And go through it for us in terms of what happened. Yeah, so this chapter kind of started for me probably sometime January or February. Um, Airbnb uniquely has a business in China. Most American Mm -hmm. companies don't even operate in China. We actually had a decent-sized business. Mm -hmm. And so because we had a decent-sized business in China, probably a little more than other business leaders, we felt the impact before them. We started Mm -hmm. seeing our China business start plummeting. We lost Mm -hmm. a huge percent of our business in China. So I started getting these early indicators, but I'll tell you, I could not for the life of me have imagined it sweep this. In early March, I was literally working on the S1 to go public, and I I had a kind of, we had a plan, and I I thought had what I thought was a clear life plan. And all of a sudden we saw Europe. Europe was first and it hit really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And next in mid-March, probably March 10th, March 13th, that's when you started seeing the United States really, really drop. And the first thing that happened is our bookings plummeted. And mm-hmm. here's the next thing that happened. We had millions of guests wanted to cancel. And this is right. this almost like, this was like on a ship and everything just broke at once. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was in a house and it was on fire, and I had to rebuild the house while on fire. It was just so harrowing. So what happened was we had more than a billion dollars of cancellations, and mm-hmm. guests wanted refunds. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that hosts create their own cancellation policies, and most hosts are flexible, but some hosts have not flexible cancellation policies. They say, if you cancel, you can get your money back. And so I had to make a decision. Do I uh, like override the host cancellation policy and give guests their money back, or mm-hmm. uphold the cancellation policy, but then like millions of guests lose over a billion dollars of refunds. And we decided not to side with guest or host, but decide on health and safety. I said, I'm not going to be on the wrong side of this issue if I'm on the right side of health and safety. And that made me conclude that I should side on the side of overriding the host cancellation policies when they were strict. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this helped me refund policies, but this created a huge problem for hosts. All of a sudden, it started going viral. There were some really angry hosts. They had some viral videos saying that it was because of me. They can't pay their rent, pay, pay their mortgage. And this was really, really hard. And you know, we, we've been generally really liked by hosts over the last 10 years, so this was the first time I experienced that. And I did make a core mistake. The mistake I made wasn't the decision I made. I stand by that. But it was the way I made the decision. We were moving so fast that we didn't consult host and we didn't really partner with them. And so well, what it was, would you have said? What would you have said to them if you because this is this is not like because you're taking money out of their hands. And and it's it's a fair thing that just happened. But yeah. what, what 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 you know, before when you had other issues, you you fixed things yeah. and you added to things. But what could yeah. you have well, done here? We, like insurance, I, presumably. Yeah, well, there's a couple things. I think that, well, yeah, we could have offered um, traveler's insurance. The problem with a lot of traveler's insurance is they sometimes don't cover pandemics. Like, they, mm-hmm. yeah. so, so if we have travel insurance, but a pandemic's carved out, it doesn't help you. And so there's, then you can buy pandemic insurance now. People are now offering that, but it wasn't even a thing you could assess for before. So we, were, we, weren't, we probably wouldn't be able to cover pandemics. Uh, they wouldn't have covered it. But you know, what we could have done is I think we could have been a little closer to host community. You know, I think one of the things that happened was, you know, Joe and I were the first host. We were the host. Then we used to talk to the host. We did meetups. We did conventions and, and conferences and stuff. And um, over the years, I think we were got a little further from our hosts. We didn't do as many listening sessions. And I think 
the tone, the process. It was more the process and the communication. It could have been better. I think the decision was right, but the process could have been Why better. Why did you make that choice with the customers over the host? Now, you people don't realize you do have two constituencies. Yeah, you do guests have, and, host. And, and three, really, because government. You know, yep. So yep. you guests have the guest and, and host, and you have to keep those in balance uh, all yeah. the time. Well, yeah, it's a really good question. And host said, why'd you side with guest? And ultimately, in these tough calls, you got to have, like, you got to like, you got to make a decision from a principle, right? Like, otherwise, what else are you going to do? And the principle I had was like, this is a health crisis. It's a pandemic. Millions of lives are at risk, not an Airbnb, just in the world. And we need to be on the right side of this issue. We need to be useful, and we can't be like contributing to things. And so if millions of guests are emailing us, and they were, saying, I feel unsafe traveling, but if you don't give me a refund, I feel like I have to travel because I don't want to lose my money, and this is money I've earned. And you know, I didn't want to put guests in harm's way and have them kind of have a moral hazard. And so I just felt like, you know, and we looked at other like standard hotel companies, hotels were giving full refunds, airlines were giving full refunds. And I felt like that was really the standard that now there was another competitor who chose not to do that. And I really think that was their choice, but I do think they were probably on the wrong side of the issue. And that was just my opinion. So we did that. That was the first thing we did, but then we had to help host. And we started seeing that they were really, really hurting and suffering. And so even before we raised money, the next thing we did, actually, I'll back up. When we had a board meeting at the beginning of the crisis, I said that we have to act with principles. And so I wrote down a series of, I wrote down a series of principles, and I'll tell you those principles in my first board meeting. And those principles were the following. We're going to be decisive. We're going to preserve cash. We're going to act with everyone in mind. We, we don't want to be villains in this crisis. We want to be on the right side of this issue, and we're going to play to win the travel season. And the way we're going to do that is four things. We're going to manage our stakeholders, we're going to cut costs, we're going to raise money, and we're going to diversify our business. So the first thing we had to do was like help our guest. Then we had to go to our host. And we basically took $250 million, which is basically the most amount of money that like we collectively could get comfortable sending to host. And we basically, it was just out of our balance sheet. And it was to give them a percentage of the refund. And then something crazy happened, pretty cool. Our employees pulled money together, a million dollars with their travel credit, and they pledged it to our host. And I thought that was really cool. So Jane and I decided we're going to add a zero to that number. So we put an extra $9 million of our own money in, and we created a $10 million fund, which was basically a super host relief fund to give grants of up to $5,000 to host. And then Silver Lake um, and a couple other investors decided to put a little bit of money in later on when we did the round. So we did a $250 million advance them, and we did a $17 million super host relief fund. So that was the second thing we did. But then the third problem was, okay, we've taken care of guests. We've done everything we can for host, at least for now. So we started doing listening sessions. We did 100 listening sessions for host. Then we raised money. And we started noticing that we were going to burn a significant amount of cash this year because revenue was going to be basically half what we thought it was. And we were profitable in 17 and 18. We weren't profitable last year, but we generated cash last year, so we were cash flow positive. So I wasn't used to like running a company that was burning money. This was a very new experience for me. We were, <laughs> you know, it's it's not new for other entrepreneurs, but it certainly was for us. We hadn't experienced this. So um, the good news is we had a lot of investors interested. We had about thirty or thirty-five reach out to us, and Silver Lake was one of them, um, and they came to us and. They offered us uh, something I thought was, uh, you know, a pretty good deal. It, it, the deal was really good, especially if the outcome of the company was really successful, because it was mm-hmm. essentially just debt. Um, the warrants, you know, were like would dilute the company less than one percent, and I felt like we felt very comfortable with the recovery. So instead of doing an equity round, we decided to do a debt round, and it was, there was essentially some equity. Correct. There was some. It was a warrants. They have warrants. Warrants. Yeah. Yeah. Warrants so of like that, half a percent, uh, three quarters of a percent. It depends on how the outcome plays out. So one of the things I talked to a lot of investors, I don't know if you heard my interview with Chamath, and he's like, oh, I would lend them money because it's a great product, but I'd sort of get the cheapest price I could get. Were you worried about that sort of people sort of hovering in and yeah. coming in to take advantage of it? Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. did you have a choice? You felt like you needed that money. Um, we had a choice. We, there was a strategic choice. Do we raise money now or do we wait a few months? Because if it starts recovering um, then we're going to totally get better terms. And of course, mm-hmm. the terms we got, I'm happy with them for where we were. And I, uh, I'm super thankful because where we were was really, really a bad spot. We're in a much better spot today because just it's just starting to recover. When you say bad spot, what does that mean? A bad spot meaning that we lost like at one point more than three quarters of our business. You know, international travel goes to almost zero. Europe goes to like way down, and Europe was you know, 40% of our business. And the thing that was scary, 
was what is what we now know is we didn't know when it would rebound. So it's a little scary when something goes down. Like it takes you like 10 years to build something and then it just goes down in a few weeks. And the problem isn't how far it goes down. It's you don't know how long it's going to be. And we had, we, we had, I had asked the team to create conservative models, more conservative than Marriott, more conservative than Expedia. I said, I just want to know the worst case scenario. And they said, well, there's a scenario where like, people don't travel for 18 months. And I said, well, what does that look like? And I said, in the scenario where people don't travel in 18 months, you burn a lot of the money that you have in the bank. And I said, right. well, Which then was I, how much? Which was? We had $3 billion in the bank. Right. And you know, right. I, I, I can't really say exactly how much is burned. But if you don't travel, if, if you have a, you know, six billion dollar operating budget, and your mm-hmm. revenue is like goes down by a huge percentage, and half of it's variable, half it's fixed. Then, yeah, you burn a lot, you burn billions of dollars in that scenario. And we didn't know what we were going to burn. It turns out we're not going to burn that much money because nearly that much money because travel is starting to recover now. But I basically said there's a threshold, and the threshold is like a certain amount of dilution, a certain kind of terms. And if we get to those terms, we should do the deal now. If the terms are super onerous and vo- like kind of vultures coming in, smelling blood, then we're going to wait it out and I'll cut enough cost to wait it out and we'll do it later. And you know, the, luckily, um, I was concerned that people were going to take advantage. And mm-hmm. you know, um, none of the serious offers that we considered were like you know, what I consider like tighten the screws kind of deals. I mean, they certainly weren't the valuation I would have had two months earlier, but they were fine for our circumstances. And, and, and Silver Lake met the threshold and I wanted to just secure the future. So we got $2 billion, and I'm glad we got the debt rather than equity, because now that the business is recovering, it was basically debt is good if you think the company's going to grow really fast, right? And equity is good if you like, you know, don't think it's going to recover because you know, you're, you're both in the downside together. Right, and, right, right. and for us, the debt was, turned out to be the right call because we are starting to see recovery. But that was really an intense experience. And I got to tell you, raising $2 billion when you're running a travel company middle of the pandemic is really different than <laughs> the way up when you're like growing 300% a year and everyone yeah. like tells you you're like amazing and you're like a hero and they're going to name their firstborn after you. And now it's like a little bit different. They're, you're not yeah. as cool. You're not the cool kid anymore. And, what, and was, you gotta, what, was, what did they call it? They were, were they nice to you? Like They were, they, gonna... were they, they were nice. But, you know, it's really interesting. The tone really changes, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, um, you need them versus. Yeah, and yeah. we did need them. <laughs> and, and we just got to be careful <laughs> not to need Brian, them too much. they're not your friends, Brian. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I told you they, that They always told me they were my friend and you told me they're, not to, to be very they careful. They are not your friend. Yeah. Well, you know, Kara is kind of interesting. You learn a lot about who people are at a crisis. And when so you, what did you when learn? You, Give me an example. Well, who did you learn in a negative way and in a positive way? Um, <laughs> um, you don't have no names if you don't. Okay, want. no, yeah, but yeah. Please, that makes if this, you want. That makes, yeah, that makes this much easier. Here's the good news. What I learned is 90% of the people in my life are totally amazing and awesome. And they're actually many people are much better better than I gave them credit for. Like, you know, I was like, their true colors came out and they were there, they were supportive. And then I, then there were other types of people, maybe not even 10%, it's like 5% or a couple percent. And they fell into two buckets. There were people for whom, you know, you kind of could tell that, oh, you've been kind of bullshitting me all, this, all these years. Mm-hmm. Because like when it really counted, this is what you believe in. And it's totally different when you told me. So there were kind of people that like, I think they didn't have, they were kind of, kind of been, maybe I learned they were kind of bullshitting me for this whole time because when you really needed them, you know, it was tough. And there were other group of people where you thought you could count on them and there weren't a lot, but there weren't that many of them. There weren't that mm-hmm. many of them. The good Meaning news not is not giving you terms or helping you or, or oh, oh I'm you. even speaking more broadly than just investors, yeah. but like mm-hmm. just like when you kind of need them, they say you're going to be there. And then, you know, the good news is 90, 95% of people came through. They were amazing. They were supportive. And again, I'm, I leave this um, not bewildered this nine weeks. I leave this saying, wow, people are actually pretty amazing. And I, you know, I, I, I was already optimistic and the vast majority of people like lived up to it. And then, you know, you learn about some people and their true colors come out and, um, and, and you kind of also realize, Kara, who you really want to spend time with. Because in a crisis, you do not have time for bullshit. You don't have time for like having meetings of people you don't want to have meetings with. You know, it's, it's kind of a really intense period. So you kind of gravitate to people, give you energy. And so that's one of the things you, you, we got out of it. What was the valuation for the company for the warrants? What was that? Because it had a different number. Was it much lower than what you had originally been at? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me let me explain this. So there there wasn't officially a valuation for the round. We actually chose not to do a priced valuation. And the valuation of the company, um, you know, the last preferred price was thirty one billion. The foreign and a valuation though had gone up to mm, thirty seven billion. So you know, it was high thirties. That was four nine a. That you know, you can't take too much stock in those numbers. But clearly, you know, we were looking at something like that, and. We decided to do a debt, and so the debt had a warrant, and the warrant converted at an $18 billion valuation. But the way that worked was it wasn't like the whole deal was valued at 18. It was basically like they needed a, we wanted to limit dilution, they wanted a certain return threshold. And so you kind of negotiate the interest of the debt and the warrant. And so the numbers kind of averaged out. So if I wanted a 20 something billion dollar, I kind of probably just paid more interest on the debt. So, you know, there was kind of like, so the, 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 it's hard to say what the value of the company was, but it absolutely came down a lot. Um, and it especially came down because when something goes down so much and you don't know if it's going to return, you have to kind of discount the company. And that we got, you know, we got discounted a bit. And if we raised the money today, we would have raised it at a lot higher price. But, mm-hmm. you know, it met my threshold, so we decided to do it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you panicked before it, or do you feel like it was a good idea at the time? You know, I never felt for one moment like I panicked in this crisis. You know, there, there's the weirdest thing. Um, I didn't have a lot of anxiety this last night because I had a lot of stress. But I oddly had more anxiety during times of peace. There's something about a crisis. I guess you learn... I guess if you can learn a lot about your, a person in a crisis, you also learn a lot about yourself. And I guess I learned about myself that I can handle a large amount of pain and uncertainty and problems. And it kind of snapped me into place. And I just like, the moment like, shit hit the fan, I was basically like, wow. Like, like I got really, really present. In, in, and I was just like, I just willed us into making the progress. Like I had a very optimistic attitude. And I kind of felt like if the leader is optimistic, people are optimistic. And if the leader thinks they're screwed, then people definitely believe they're screwed. And so much of um, of our succeeding was people had to believe we could get through the crisis. That's the thing people don't talk about. So much of a crisis, you have to be decisive, number one. You have to act with like on based on principles and you better write down what the heck you're making decisions on. And you have to be optimistic because it's very easy to get discouraged and quit and give up. And, and, you, and often the leader is the most optimistic person and everyone else is more worried and more pessimistic than the leader. And it's easy to be optimistic for a moment, but how do you every single day when your business is going down, when there's problems, when like hosts are pissed off, when everything feels like it's breaking, when your house on fire, how do you maintain that optimism every single day without it beating you down? And that was kind of the main thing I learned about myself was that I was able to kind of get through that. And I got through that mainly because of how much support I had of my founders, my board. So who was your, who would you say is the people that helped you? What was, who turned out to give you the best advice and what was it? I had, um, I mean, just in, in no particular order, just kind of top of mind. I mean, my, my co-founders, Joe and Nate, and by the way, Kara, I mean, you, you may know, you did like almost the first interview I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. By the way, right. doing your first interview ever with Kara Swisher is not like, <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> Nolan Ryan or pitching us fastball, like you've never played baseball before, but you did it in, uh, I think it was like the Creamery. So Joe, Nate, and I, I'm pretty proud that like, you know, 12 years later, we're still together. And, yeah. you know, this crisis kind of brought us closer. <laughs> I guess, like, this is not a perfect analogy, but, like, we're kind of like, as founders, you're kind of like a parent. And, like, mm-hmm. if the kid's sick, you kind of come together. And, and we got really, really close because of this. And, and Joe and Nate really helped me, like, make sure we're making really long-term decisions. We weren't going to, like, do anything to trade in the future. My board was really, really helpful. Um, you know, Belinda had just joined my board. Um, you know, I'll give a call out to, like, you know, Ken Chenault. Ken Chenault is a former CEO of Amex. He was incredible. And then, you know, between Alfred, Jeff, Ann, and, and Angela, like I had some really good support there. And there, and there were a few other uh, uh, people. I, I, you know, I, I talked to some other um, kind of founder friends and they, they gave me advice. And, um, you know, and I also talked to, you know, I, I think I've told you before, I have a kind of, a, I have a standing kind of regular check-in with President Obama. And he kind of, you know, he was kind of one of the people that really, made me realize super early on the seriousness of this of the pandemic you know i think mm-hmm. kind of before the media reported on his seriousness um he, he you know he, he kind of gave me a bit of a wake up call that this is a really serious situation and that i think that really helped me cuz it, it helped me like i think 
not, I think a lot of people were kind of half measured in the beginning of the crisis. And that really woke me up I'm like, yeah, we got to like step it up. This is going to get really, really bad. And I think that helped us embolden us to, to go a little further. You know, those are just some people come to mind, but there were, there were a lot. I mean, you know, I, I mean, my investors were really good. I tend to call them when we have challenges, you know, like Mark and Treason and, 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 and others as well. So. All right. We're here with Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. We're going to talk about the IPO and what Airbnb is going to do next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. We're here with Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. We've talked about sort of the struggles that happened when his business got hit, unlike a lot of other tech companies like Amazon or Facebook, which are seeing big gains in their businesses. Um, Airbnb and Uber and some others are businesses that have a massive analog element, and analog is sort of uh, hitting back hard on businesses because of the virus. Um, you were working on your S1 you were talking about. Yeah, what, yeah. So what's going to happen now? Obviously, you're not going public in 2021. Twenty no, no well, well, 2020. I think you're at, you mean 2020. 2020. Well, 2021 yeah. too. <laughs> I kind of mean, mean 2021 also. Um, oh, it's totally possible um, that it could be, you know, later this year, could be next year. Um, listen, I mean, if we were to go public this year, we wouldn't get the valuation that I would have imagined we would have gone. And it, a lot of it depends on the recovery. Um, but I've not ruled anything out. And there's no point at this point to ruling anything out. So I would have filed the S1... March, I don't know how many days are March. March 30th, there's a 30 days of March. 31st. I would probably, 31st, I probably would have filed the end of the month. So I probably would have filed March 31st. Huh. Um, we, di we didn't file. Kind of, it's, it's written. It's kind of, you know, on a, well, it's on a file. It's, it's digital, obviously. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's on my metaphorical desk here, um, yeah. ready to dust off when we're ready. And, you know, the world is so uncertain right now. I basically, I've always believed a great company could go public in a good economy, a bad economy, but I just hadn't tested a depression slash pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's right, a different right. level. And so I think that we just need to see stability in metrics. And it, it, things are recovering. We're especially seeing recovery of domestic. In fact, our European business has domestic part, people traveling within countries, almost fully recovered. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the cross-border, we're very exposed, and that's not recovered well, you yet. So. You can't travel. People mostly can't travel. You mostly can't cross, cross borders, and people are mm -hmm. very afraid to fly. I think fly, uh, airlines are down by like 95%. So people just aren't yeah. getting on planes. So the really big fundamental question is mix shift. But the answer is, like, we'll be ready, and, I, you know, whether it's this year or next year, and we'll certainly be ready. Um, and, and I don't know. And the valuation you were looking at was much in the 30s, in the 40s. Yeah, and the, yeah, and the yeah. Hard, hard to know, um, hard to know. You know, it was going to be, um, we, it was probably going to be a direct listing, you know. Um, you know, there were still, ch like, choices we were going to make, but that right. was where we were trending um, because we had more money in the bank than we raised. And, you know, the, mm -hmm. the core business had generated hundreds of millions of dollars in, in free cash, and we were using that to fund new things. At this point, you know, we would either not do a direct listing or raise more money and then do a direct listing. We haven't made choices yet, but we're you know, we're definitely not in the same cash position we probably would have been before this. But you know, it, the the two billion kind of certainly stabilized things. So, do you need um, to raise more money? No, we don't need to raise more money. All right. So you're looking at the business that you were saying we were going to we were using that free cash flow to do new things, and you did yeah. do a lot of things. You did content. Did you things. were doing experiences. Transportation. You were, we had a, transportation. We were working on a really big transportation offering that I was intending Which to was launch. What? A, well, airlines. It was, uh, airlines. Yeah, yeah. We we were going to build our own you know version of um, flight booking, and it was incredible product, and we had been we, we were working on it, and 
it, it had an offline component too. It, like really, it was really it was a pretty. You were cool going to have airplanes. You were going to. No, no, we air- were. You know, we were partnering with airlines, and we were going to try to cry, provide a differentiated experience for Airbnb guests. So yeah. we had something, and we took many many of our really best people, and we put them on that team, and it just became very obvious that. Business is way down. We have to do a layoff. We're gonna have twenty five percent fewer people. We need to focus this company. And you know, one of the things you kind of do when you get this moment is everything slows down. You're like, wow, we've been doing a lot and we've been accumulating a lot and a lot of complexity. And so we decided to go really, really back to basics. So we paused transportation, and that's right. Paused. So that was the airline offering where you would take, you would yeah. book a trip and then book a yeah. flight. And that's paused for at least a year, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and, and we'll revisit in a year. Still and, a good idea from your perspective? If it, all things being equal, if it was back to a, a yeah. more, I mean, know, we had a vaccine. A, yeah, yeah. In a world traveling. where people fly, I think it was a really amazing product. Um, okay. But, you know, we got to make choices. And so one of the things, like, you know, Steve Jobs is famous for saying, like, there's a ton of things Apple can do, but there's only a few things they should do. And so it's really about there's only a few things we should do right now. So transportation, we had to pause. Content, you know, we had a whole content thing. We yep. paused all that. We had a magazine. And it was that, really cool that was it was a good magazine, actually. Yeah, and yeah, you had advertising and everything behind else. Behind me just, and everything, yeah. yeah. So that pause. Um, we had three pretty good-sized teams. Each team was almost 300 people each. So we, had a ho- we, have, a, well, we have a hotel business, a Lux business, and then a professional host, property managers. Um, Lux is uh, quite a bit smaller now. We still do Airbnb Lux, but it's, it's a bit these smaller are, team. Be- these are better Airbnbs. Yeah, yeah, basically like one, one to $2,000 a night Airbnbs that are vetted. They go through a 300-point inspection. They often have like a full house staff on premise. They're, they're like some of the nicer homes in the world. Right. And so clearly like that market is still big. It probably will be big even in this economy because the people that are wealthy are still wealthy. But it's just more like we can't do everything so we can't put as much resources on this. Hotels we're still doing, but we had to really pair that back. If you have to make a choice, you really have to prioritize the core of a community. And this is putting hotels on the platform, correct? This is putting, yeah, we acquired Hotel Tonight early last year. And then we had a, we, we have, and we still have, a major effort to get those hotels onto Airbnb and be able to book them. We want to build a product, you know, we love Hotel Tonight's product. We wanted to take it even a step forward from Hotel Tonight. And we're still going to do that, but um, it's going to take a bit longer. And, you know, the aspirations for the near term are going to have to be a little more modest. So these were the like big iconic things that we scaled back. And then there were a ton of things that we also paused. I mean, um, we've probably paused uh, I actually told the company today that we basically did an audit. I did an audit of, uh, I think it was 131 projects and wow. programs. And I think we paused or scaled back like plus or minus 70 of them. So that's just like close to 60% or so. So and these we did are small it, and large projects. Small like. and large. So really large would be the, the um, big ones I said, um, mm-hmm. either scale back or pause. And then there are a lot of little features that are pretty, you know, they're nice to have, they're really important, but they're just not the most important. So that's, that's what we did. Was there any that you were like, oh, I can't believe I can't do this? Like, I can't? Yeah, there were so many. I, I don't even, um, I have the list somewhere. Um, the thing I told the company today, because, you know, like, by definition, a large percent of people were working on some of these projects, they said, we loved all these things. Because if we didn't love it, I wouldn't have worked on it in the first place. It's not like I fell out of love with it. It's just that we have to prioritize, number one, is it like delivering belonging connection? Like that's kind of why we're mm-hmm. here. When people are rooting for us to exist, that's why they're rooting for us to exist because of what we deliver. Um, do, are they, do they map to something simple? Do people really want this right now? Are we taking a leap of faith? And, um, and, and, and it doesn't make a really big impact. And so, yeah, there were a lot of things we had to defer you know, we were working on like a loyalty program, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the person who ran Amazon Prime works for me. So we, we, um, so, so we, we had that and, you know, that we're still going to work on that, but that's going to be deferred, right? I was hoping to launch that soon. So things like that. And so, so, so yeah, I love, I would love to have an Airbnb like kind of program that'd be really awesome. And we're just gonna have to defer that stuff. All right, in cutting those projects that you had, these are all things that you do in an expansive mode. You're doing very well, you're making money, you're gonna go public. You know, and I know that. We had to cancel code. I have the greatest lineup ever this year. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of a, yeah, you were coming. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to go back to it someday, but not today. Um, but one, I'm more of the mandala school of it's just the way it is. Things things you create and then they get destroyed. How did you, what was the thing that really got you that you were like, oh, I really liked doing that. That was cool. Well, I mean, one of the things that I was really passionate, I am very passionate about is, um, you know, we've been talking about creating, like, uh, we have a super host program, which is kind of like a loyalty program for hosts. And 
Everyone's been asking about us creating a loyalty program for guests. I mean, almost every travel company in the world sure. has a loyalty program. Like, if you have a travel company, you don't have a loyalty programs, and we don't have one. And we have a very committed community. So I was very excited about basically creating a super guest program. And so that one has to have been punted. I mean, actually, one thing is it was super a huge bummer was the Olympics. So we were. Um, we're one of the banner sponsors for 10 years. So, you know, I have like these old brands like Coca-Cola and Visa, and we decided to partner with the Olympics because we were going to have 400,000 people stay in Tokyo in Airbnbs for the Olympics, which would be like, uh, like five and a half stadiums worth of people. And we were going to do all these Airbnb experiences with Olympians. It turns out that like, the mm. average Olympian um, lives below the um, yeah. below the median income. Like a, a lot of Olympians do not make a lot of money. They, no, they, they do and not. So, and a lot of them live under the poverty level. So there's just people that need income. And we had all these audacious Olympic plans, and they mostly got shuttered. We did do something modest where we have online experiences where you can train. I think we have 15 Olympians mm-hmm. where for like 20 bucks or whatever, 30 bucks, you can have an hour lesson with an Olympian mm-hmm. online. So those are really cool, but we had to really scale that back. Yeah. Those would be like uh, two examples. I'm just yeah. looking at my list. Um, oh, that's all right. Yeah, that's those, a, are, those so, are two So there's a lot ones. of stuff. So what now? So now you're saying getting back to basics, which means regular hosts, because you yeah, had had multi apartment operators, yeah. which is very oh, yes, controversial. Yes. Gone? Gone? Or or just, you're going to go back to the, back. the idea scale of back. hosts The idea, people. the original idea. The original right. idea of hosts. Why? Be, I mean, Why? Because when you stare, like, it, when you're facing what can feel like an abyss, like, you're kind of, your life kind of, your company flashes before your eyes. And you ask yourself, like, you have to ask yourself really fundamental questions. Like, I like to ask entrepreneurs when they start something, why do you deserve to exist? And the best answer, the generic answer I've ever heard, is because if I don't do it, no one else will. In other words, you're doing something, and if you don't do it, no one else will. Because otherwise, if you don't do it, someone else will make a bunch of money. And I thought, well, what do we uniquely bring? That if we didn't exist anymore, the world would not have that thing. And the thing that was most different about us were the thing that was truly special were these everyday people that were sharing their homes and offering experiences and connecting with one another. Um, And it doesn't mean that, like, the other stuff we were doing wasn't important, but other people do that, and you mm-hmm. can get that stuff elsewhere. And so, you really, you have to get back to like why you do this in the first place. And what we were passionate about was like human connection, actually bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And when people criticize Airbnb, they're usually not criticizing our mission. They're not like, oh, that's bullshit. They just feel like, well, y- you say this, but you sell all of this other stuff and mm-hmm. why are you keep saying this if you're selling all this other stuff so we thought well you know we're, we're going to be a marketplace it doesn't mean we're not going to have this other stuff but we need to really make sure that what we're saying that founding premise we're going back to and I honestly felt like actually now more than ever we yearn for it in other words when you start losing things you start to think about what you still have and the things that I think we really value now are our relationships our connections to one another and just our connection to the outside world and so I think we yearn for human connection and that's why I think people are finding new ways to connect and so we said you know what we're going to go back to that have you abandoned the idea of people like doing this for a living like buying a number there were so many stories right after the people who had bought several homes for a living and now they're screwed Although they went into business doing that. Like I, on one level, yeah. I was like, well, that was what you decided to do as a job. So, and it didn't work out because of this pandemic. But one of the, it, 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 is, that, is that not who you're thinking of anymore? People who buy a bunch of apartments or multi, you know, that's where a lot of those fraud stories seem to come up in too at the same time. But yeah, you're referring to in the wake of Arinda, um, there was another very negative and viral story about that Vice did about um, a property manager that was basically doing bait, bait and switch. Um, and that sometimes happens. Um, so the answer is that we're going to focus and prioritize on regular people. Um, and, and, and honestly, I think that's actually a way bigger business opportunity because the number of households in the world is like over a billion households. And they're not all going to listen to Airbnb, but there's not a fixed number of people that will share their home. There it just really isn't. And if you think about like we're entering an economic depression, all these creative people, the creative class, like people working in restaurants, people in music, they can't tour, they can't do restaurants, they have a lot of time in their hands. So we think they can do experiences. So w- there are focus is not um, going to be on larger commercial proprietors. It doesn't mean we're not going to do it. It's just not where we're going to prioritize our energy. Um, now, we do have some people who manage like four homes or like three airstreams, and it's really unique. So we're not saying like you can't have more than one property. It's just there's a point at which it becomes industrialized. It becomes efficient. It becomes such a business that 
you try to like mechanize it. And it, we end up doing sometimes when a business gets too efficient is you like kind of automate the human interaction out of it. You know, like like humans are imperfect, and you 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 meet with somebody. If that meeting is transactional and efficient, it kind of feels like more traditional hospitality. Right. It's like guys, like let's go back to the space that we can uniquely occupy. So we're mm-hmm. not compared to anyone else. This is the thing that only we do. That's what we're mm-hmm. going to do. And so one of the things uh, someone was pointing out to me, and it was Scott Galloway, is that you have variable costs. Uh, hotels yes. do not. They have, yes. once you have a hotel, the Palm Springs, whatever, you can cut costs by so much, maybe even 50%, but you can't get to zero. And you have then the mortgage costs and everything. Yes, and land yes they costs have way more fixed costs. Way, way more fixed costs. costs. Talk a little bit about that. How do you, because you can scale up and down. You could become a smaller, bigger business. We're in a better spot than I think people probably the average person would think from the outside. The first thing is, yes, the majority of our costs are variable costs. Um, our main costs are four things. Merchant fees. So we handle money and we take a 15% commission, but like we have to pay the credit card companies, right? And so that ends up being billions of dollars a year because they take a small cut, but two per, you know, Two percent of the whole, and then you know it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars. So that's one customer service. You know we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on customer service, and that scales the business, right? We have tens of millions of people call us every year, and every one of those calls costs multiple dollars per call. So um, so if we get fewer calls, we have less customer service. Um, the third one is Amazon Web Services. We actually spend a lot on Amazon Web Services. Every time somebody searches, every time somebody does a query, we have to pay for that. So that scales in a variable basis. So these are just like some examples of our variable costs. And so, and then, and then we were doing actually a bunch of performance marketing at the time. We've we t- we've taken that almost to zero. We basically cut eight hundred million dollars. So the short version is we are not going to lose uh, nearly as much money in this storm as a traditional hotel company because they have a lot more fixed costs, a lot more contracts. They have potentially a lot of other things. Staff. The other, yeah, yeah, staff. You know, they have to put people on furlough, and they have a lot of other things they have to do. So we are a pretty lean marketplace in the end of the day, and it probably explains why the company was actually generating quite a lot of cash in its core business. Now, the other, the one other thing that's not known about this company, and I've kind of said it before, but it didn't really stick, is the following: we have more homes on Airbnb today than before the crisis started. Huh. So. That's a that's probably the single most surprising stat I can share. We have more people homes today than before. People are putting them on there because they need people to People are money. putting them on, and there's this idea. I, I, there's a bit of a like a, a narrative that like all these property managers. Airbnb, here's the like the narrative that's not true. Airbnb is mostly professional man, property managers, and they're all going bust. So Airbnb is going to lose all their inventory because they're coming all on the long term market. There's a narrative going on. It's not true. There are some property managers that are going bust or are taking their homes and putting them on the long-term rental market. But the vast majority are regular people. And if we were dominated by property managers, why would we have more properties today than before? It just doesn't, the math doesn't add up. So people are coming to Airbnb to list their homes. And here's the other thing that's important. Most hotels are decommissioning a lot of their rooms. So if a hotel goes, the magic number is, I think, between 30 and 40%. Let's say 40. Or let's say 30, I'll be conservative. Below 30% occupancy, it usually does not make sense for the hotel to stay open because the cost to maintain and keep the building open, they just can't make the cost back. All the rooms are empty. So a hotel is basically have to decommission all these hotels. And this is a chain. Little hotel companies may actually decommission them permanently because most small businesses, like the average restaurant, has 30-day savings. Most small hotel companies probably have a few months' savings. They can't call Silver Lake or Sequoia to get funded. They're just a boutique hotel company. they got to get a government loan or they're kind of out of luck. And so a lot of these hotels are not going to come back on the market. The pipelines are dead. You know, you're not going to be, or almost dead, you're not going to be building a lot of new hotels. And a lot of them are going to get decommissioned. And they're going to take a while to come back, right? You're not going to turn the whole hotel back online. So the benefit we have is we have all the properties still on Airbnb because it doesn't cost anything to leave your listing up. You're not paying money to list on Airbnb and you don't have to staff until somebody checks in. And so our benefit is, as travel begins to recover, we have all the supply, and that is going to benefit us. And the other benefit is, you know, I do think, and I, I think I've heard a little bit you talking about, will people live in cities or not live mm-hmm. in cities in the future? I'm on and, the and, cities part, I'm, and Scott is on the anti-cities part. I will take a, um, not to, being in the middle always seems really boring, right? I'm going to take a middle <laughs> Opinion, okay. but it's somewhat informed by data because, like, we have like right. still have like hundreds of millions of queries. So, what we're seeing 
is, and, and I'll say less about whether they'll live in cities or not. Maybe that's the, the point I don't have a strong opinion on. But here's the thing. I think fewer people are going to be living in a single city. Like a whole bunch of people are going to live in a city, but like a whole bunch of other people are going to live a few months here, a few months there, and kind of move around a little bit. Because if your job mm-hmm. can be... It, work from home can pretty soon be work from any home. Why couldn't it be? And so one of the things we're seeing is at one point, like four weeks ago, huh. 50% of our business were monthly rentals, 50%. Wow. Wow. And so monthly rentals have gone which down a bit. Right, which, which was No, it was tiny. So yeah. monthly rentals are going to basically, which is different than Craigslist, that's one-year right. leases. So there's this new use case of I need a place for a month or two, and that's become a pretty big boom for us. And I think what's going to happen, my view on this is small cities are going to blow up. You're going to have this thing called travel redistribution. So it used to be that there were 1.4 billion tourist arrivals every year. So 1950, 25 million people crossed the border. Last year, 1.4 billion did. And they basically all go to the same damn cities. They go to Vegas, Miami, Rome, New York, Paris. They stay in a few hotel districts and they go to the same 10 landmarks with selfie sticks and take photos in front. And what's going to happen now, especially because it's kind of like the same reason why not everyone's going to go back into working in an office because they were Mm -hmm. forced to do something different. A whole bunch of people are going to realize I don't need to get on an airplane and go to that faraway like global city and get my photo in front of the Coliseum. I can drive and go to this nearby place. And so I think we're going to have is a huh. lot of long tail. You're going to have Travel a lot. redistribution. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I, I had this joke. I said, Pittsburgh's the new Paris. It's not. But the point it's, is that like for not, a whole Brian. bunch of. <laughs> it's not. I'm trying to, but I, but I, I, I like will. Pittsburgh. If we could, if we could make strangers stay in their homes, can't we make Pittsburgh feel like no. Paris? It's like a no. biggest marketing. <laughs> okay. I like Pittsburgh and they're going to, I'm going to get all these emails. It from sounds Pittsburgh, cool but, though, right? Pittsburgh's the new Paris. Sounds cool. Uh, I think you should keep saying it and, and people will laugh <laughs> quietly behind your back. But. Uh, okay. But, <laughs> But, 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 the, but the more important, yeah, I'm joking about that. But the more important point is that a whole bunch of people are going to travel to small communities, and yep. you're going to see basically a leveling of the playing field. So that's what's going to happen. And, and one, one, here's a dollar and cent reason: small cities are cheaper, cheaper to get mm-hmm. to, and cheaper to patron. The price per night's lower. The activities are cheaper. Everything's cheaper, so you can have a longer vacation. So I think people are going to be less tied to cities, and there's going to be a major travel redistribution. And I think Airbnb is on the right side of that issue because most small towns can't afford to build a hotel because they don't have enough people visiting, but they can have homes. I mean, obviously they all have homes. And so this is where I think our business is going to go a bit. It's going to go two places. It's going to go to like small cities and small communities, not singularly, but it will diversify and it will be longer stays. You know, it will move in that direction, more unique, more local, more regular people. And then, then we're going to go really doubling down on experiences, starting with online because online are a bit of a gateway. And, and then when regular experiences come back online, remember, restaurants won't all be open. Theaters won't all come back. Bars like, won't all come back. I mean, there's a lot of small businesses. Some of those owners are not going to come back. They're going to say, mm-hmm. I'm out. You know, I could go down the list. Shopping malls, you know, not everyone's going to shop just for fun again because everyone's buying stuff on Amazon. So you don't, like shopping's not an entertainment for everyone anymore. So we do think there's going to be a gap in the market. And so I think experiences can help. So we're going right. to really put more energy there. All right, I like these theories. All right, we're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. We're going to talk about having to let people go and where he thinks the tech industry is going from here and some of his thoughts on where Airbnb will be in a year. We're back with Brian Chesky. He's the CEO of Airbnb. Brian, one of the things that I will pay a compliment to you is your severance packages were quite generous. And you did it, you let out, let go how many people? You let go? 1,900 1, approximately, people, right. a little over 1,900. 2,000 people. You gave yeah. very generous severance benefits. And I think most people felt that, you know, no one likes being fired, but it was it was interesting. How did you think about that? Because uh, it was not not no taxi. Very few. You and Uber had to lay people off. Facebook is not doing that. Other companies are not doing that. Well, one of the things I did, and I mean, I ended up writing a letter, which I think you may have mm-hmm. seen online, I and, and I, pub- I I mean, it became very very clear that we had to cut a lot of cost. And so the first thing I did is we cut down $800 million in marketing. The executive team took half salaries. We renegotiated our variable cost. You know, we kind of like went down the list of savings. When we got down the list, we even, you know, like ended a bunch of contracts with vendors and contractors. We got down the list and then we raised $2 billion. But the problem is that even that wasn't enough when we faced two hard truths that we didn't know when travel would recover. And even when it did, it would look different. And we realized at that moment we had to evolve the Airbnb business, it had to be smaller. And so, 
the first thing is I said, if we have to make a cut, we must go. And I got this advice from people. They said, whatever you do, never do two layoffs in a row. Like, if you're going to have to do it, do it once because people can stand one layoff, but they can't withstand two. So I said, the big mistake a lot of people do is they don't cut deep enough the first time. And I said, we're going to cut deep enough not to have to do a second layoff, but we're going to go, we're going to be extra generous and compassionate with the severance. So I basically wrote a bunch of principles. I said, we're going to map all reductions to our business strategy. I didn't want this to be personal. You know, I really want to be about like these businesses we're not doing anymore. Um, the second thing is I want to do as much as we could for those impacted. And then I wanted to optimize for, to do this in a deeply personal and human way. And I basically said to us, like, core values are crap if you don't actually live them. And you are most remembered for how you were when you had a gun to your head and you were in your most trying of circumstances. I said, we'll be remembered for this. We better lead by example and do the right thing. So we ended up going through a few things. Severance, you know, I looked at what other companies were doing and I kind of, we did a fairly rigorous analysis of the cost. And the, the short version is companies usually can do a little more for severance than they lead on. Another way of saying it is the cost of the employee is a lot greater than the cost of the company, right? The person, and so, so, so we could have done like six weeks, but we really wanted to go a little bit more. So we did 14 weeks plus a week per year service. The second thing I saw it is I want to take the issue of health insurance off the table as much as I can. This is a pandemic. And so we decided to extend COBRA health insurance in the United States for 12 months. In Europe, they mostly all have health insurance um, or they have better, better coverage. Equity, I always told people they're owners and I didn't want anyone to not leave with stock because of the pandemic. So we waived all cliffs, gave them accelerated investing to the next vest date. But the best idea was originated by my co-founder, Joe. He said, you know, what people need more than money is a new job. It's kind of like you give somebody a fish or teach them how to fish. So we said, you know, we can give them money and a really good severance, but that can only hold them over to the next job. So we had this crazy idea. We said, what if we just allowed employees to opt in to a talent directory, where it's basically like our own version of LinkedIn, where we put people's profiles out and you can contact them on LinkedIn. And we, a thousand employees opted in. And 350,000 people visited our employees' profiles. And quite a few actually have been hired, even just in the last two weeks. So mm -hmm. I was not expecting that. And I, we also said, we're going to dedicate a large percent of recruiting team to helping employees find new jobs. I said, let's just go above and beyond. Let's help them. It's like karma. It's going to pay back. We just got to do the right thing. See, one of the things I learned in a crisis is, not always optimized for the, for the business result because you can't possibly predict how it's going to go. You remember 2011, a woman's apartment was trashed and mm -hmm. you know this was one of the first I times I got to know you. And I kept like trying to do shit to make it right and I was apologizing, this and that. And it, everything I did made it worse. And at one point I said to myself, I don't know how the hell it's going to go down. There was a hashtag trending, RIP Airbnb. And I said, if I went down, the whole house burned down with me. How do I want to be remembered? And I said, this is what we're going to do. And I said, I, I, and later on, I called that a principal decision, meaning if you don't know what the outcome is, how do you want to be remembered? What's the right thing to do? It actually becomes very useful in a crisis because it's just too hard to know how it's going to play out. But you know what your principles are, even in a crisis. So that was one of the things we did. We dedicated a percentage of recruiting team. We let them keep their laptops. And then the last thing I, I did was I said, I'm just going to like speak from the heart. You know? And I really, I mean, I was really upset about it. And I, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of CEOs are told, they get advice. You know, a layoff is one of those things where it's been done a certain way, so people do it a certain way because it's always been done a certain way. And there's not really a good reason otherwise for why it's done that way. And so I thought, like, you know, we can do this with humanity. Our company is, like, our original tagline was travel like a human. Like, how could a company have that tagline and not be human in how they deal with people? So that's what we did. And I mean, I can't presume to say it was perfect. We are humans. Humans make mistakes and we're not perfect. But we did the best we could. And I hope it's maybe a, a little bit of an example for other entrepreneurs. Like, may, Maybe there's one small a silver lining beyond the fact that hopefully a lot of the employees will get new jobs. And the silver lining is maybe other entrepreneurs that wanted be a little more generous and they get pushed back from their board, right? And it'll be normal to get pushed back. Can use this as an example, say, well, that was pretty well received. I, I think we can go for this. And so maybe if there's a silver lining, maybe that's what it is. So you, what does the employee base look like going forward? Now, we just talked before this that Facebook just announced they're going to let people work from remotely. Twitter yeah. talked about it. Do you see that happening at your company? You know, they're in a much better financial shape than you are, and then they actually are thriving through this. I think Facebook has $50 billion yes. in the bank. That's, yes, that's really yes. good. 
That's a lot. I, I did we want the FTC that. to relieve them of more of it, but that didn't happen. <laughs> so when you look at this growing power of companies like Facebook and 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 uh, and others in this and Amazon particularly in this crisis, and you're you know you're sort of on your back foot. What does your employee base look like? Do you think that's going to happen? These this work from home? And sorry, when you say just so I understand the question, Carol, when you say look like, you mean like where will they be distributed yeah, or the no, composition? No, where will they be distributed? Do you are you looking at doing that yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, what I what I told the employees is I said I want to optimize this year for flexibility. So I told our employees last week that nobody has to come into the office for the rest of 2020 if they don't want to. So people can work remote for the rest of the year. I told them I think the world is going to get a lot more remote and a lot mm-hmm. more flexible. And I've not made a grand statement yet that we're going to be 100% remote or something like that because. I think we're only nine or ten weeks into this crisis, and I just think it. I, I, it really, there's no point of making pronouncements for me right now to walk through one-way doors. But I've said you can be remote for the rest of this year, and I do think we and everyone is going to be significantly more remote for the rest of this year. And I think that the paradigm of working in an office is altered forever. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely very bullish on that idea that people are realizing that for many things, they're actually much more productive working remote and that the talent base can be opened up, you know, suddenly like you can hire from 100,000 cities, not mm-hmm. a couple cities. And so I think it's going to afford things. I do think though there is a reason why there, there's a point to human interaction. And so there may be positions or jobs where we really do want them to be physically together. There are some creative functions where it really helps to stand in a room together and, mm-hmm. and work on stuff. But I'm on the side of flexibility and I am on the side of the trend towards remote work. But other than getting like really good PR, it probably doesn't like benefit me to like yeah. make a big statement about where the world's going to go. What's the difference between now and three months from now if you can work remote to the end of the year anyway? Yeah. All right. So what does Airbnb look like in a year if you had your, your, your best case scenario from you? Best from case what scenario? You think? Best case scenario. Best case scenario is um, a year from now you have me back on the show and you in the, in, in, and the <laughs> all right. well first of all yeah a year for, that's not the best case scenario well no that's that's a good scenario the good, the good scenario is I'm still relevant we're still relevant you want me back on the show and, and more than that the title of the show is called the Airbnb Comeback and okay. you're going to ask me how did you do it that's what you would ask me and hopefully what I would say what you would say is Brian um, you know it seems like you were facing this like harrowing experience. People were asking, will Airbnb exist in the future? Can Brian yeah. Chesky save Airbnb? And you're going to say, you know, now you're thriving again. And, and you're going to say, how'd you do it? And I'm going to say the things I said. I'm going to say, well, because it turned out that people still wanted to travel. They just didn't want to get on airplanes. They didn't want to put themselves in harm's way, but they were dying to get out of their house. And we mobilized our host community and we were there where the world was. The world was they wanted to save money. Well, Airbnb allows you to save money when traveling. They wanted to book last minute. We're very flexible. They wanted to travel to local communities. And we're in every, basically in almost every community in the world, but like cities in North Korea, because they have no internet. Like we're basically in every other community in the world. And they're staying longer. We're fulfilling that demand. And finally, online experiences blew up and they. They led to Airbnb experiences truly catching on in pop culture. If I can say that next year, I mean, God, you'll probably invite me and play this recording and we'll see if anything's right, happened. And, and maybe and it doesn't. You, how do you make people feel safer in Airbnbs? I mean, are they, oh, yeah, there'll yeah. be a debate about Airbnb it's a great versus question. hotels. Oh, totally. Someone totally. was saying, oh, I'd stay in Airbnb. And I'm like, but would you want someone in your home? Can you clean it right? What's the great question? You, yeah. So let me talk about that. Um, first, are, this is really interesting. This is an objective statement. In other words, this is not my data. This is Google Trends. And I think the data is probably publicly available. Google gave us this data. Our business, what I call home sharing, like Google calls alternative accommodations, basically non-hotel accommodations. Right. On, on total number of accommodation keywords on Google, I think before COVID, alternative accommodations comprised, let's say, 25% of the queries. And now they comprise about 40%. So what's happening is Air, uh, home sharing and Airbnb is, is recovering faster in hotels. There's a mix shift towards alternative accommodations and home sharing. And one of the reasons why is, well, there's a bunch of reasons why. One is it's cheaper, it's in every market. But the other reason why is generally, um, we'll get to the cleanliness in a second, generally people don't want to be in public spaces in lobbies, sharing elevators, and also when they're sequestered in their house and they're dying to get out of their house, the last thing you want to do is step out of their house to get into a 900 square foot space that's like kind of mass produced and there's 100 and they all feel like the same. People 
kind of don't want to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing is they want it. They want to be in private spaces that the, the, where people aren't dwelling. So when we do a lot of surveys, we on balance probably do a little bit better than hotels because structurally, if you go to a non-urban area, you're in a home, and if no one's been there for the last day, there's probably not a lot of germs. Now there is a there's there's a there is a weakness we have, and it's. A hotel has staff, and those cleaning staff can have a cleaning certification. If I was a hotel and I wanted to go after Airbnb, I mean, I guess I'm giving away a playbook, but it's pretty obvious. I would have a COVID cleaning standard. I'd say, we do it, and they don't. So I'm anticipating that. So we brought on the um, former Surgeon General of the United States for President Obama. His name's Dr. Vivek Murthy, and he and I have some other medical experts advising on COVID cleanliness standards, and we're now training our host globally, and we're going to allow them to take courses. And it's kind of like you get a certification, you went through the course, right? And we'll put those badges on Airbnb listings. The other thing is we're now trying to also figure out how to verify the places are clean. There's a number of things we can do, and I have a whole team working on it. And this is kind of the biggest, probably one of the biggest moonshots in the company, is how can we try to make sure every Airbnb is as clean or cleaner than a hotel room. It's a really, really hard problem. Yeah, because they have and standardized... Hard, yeah, and we're in 100... Imagine you had, if you had hotel rooms in 100,000 cities, how do you clean them all the time without a staff? It's very, very hard, but there are ways we think we can do it, and there's ways we can do verification and stuff and work with cleaning partners. So these are, these are some of the things we're going to be doing. Um, we did poll U.S. guests mm-hmm. recently who booked Airbnbs, and the number one barrier to booking Airbnb, 42% said they were nervous about cleaning. So we think this is the primary thing. But we are seeing a lot of recovery. And, you know, we also, we create a 24-hour window. So, you know, the germs live, what, around like 24 hours on most surfaces. Mm-hmm. So we tried yeah. to create, we created a 24-hour gap. So we don't allow people to check in more than 24 hours after the last person checked so out. So this blo- is going to be critical in the initial yeah, months. So we, yeah, so it we won't block, be after a while. But no, yeah. after a while, but now. And so we block a day. So if you check out on the first, the next guest can't check into the third. And we have that one-day gap. And so we're doing a bunch of things like that. And I want to take this thing that, and I want to make it a strength. I would love to design the cleaning standard for our industry. I mean, that's, that's my ambition. That would be another version of success. As I'm on and, and you said, wow, you guys really did that. You realize really did get that cleaning standard, but it's going to be a really hard problem. Yeah, for you, absolutely. Okay, last question, because uh, we've got to go. You've been, um, I, I was going to get into who you've been hiring lately. We'll talk about that another time. But sure. um, what have you been doing during this crisis? <laughs> you've been at home, right? With your I've parents, correct? I've been at home. So I've been, I, I, I live in a house by myself. And well, nine weeks ago, um, I was by myself and I was in this house by myself and it was the weirdest thing because like, you know, like all of us, life became really simple and I didn't have like all the stuff around me and I just home all day and I live in the mission. So I'd walk to Dolores Park and I hadn't ridden a bike since I was a kid and I got a bicycle and it was crazy because I, you know, there's no one on the street in San Francisco. And then about four or five weeks ago, my mom had just moved to San Francisco. Actually, it's a funny story. Um, my mom, I think, came here. It was something like March 13th or like the day <laughs> she, she, gets on, she, she, she gets a job in San Francisco and she, she relocates. And my dad says he's going to come later. And so she literally gets on the airplane. And the moment she steps in the airplane, London Breed issues a shelter in place. And while she's in the air, her job she's relocating for becomes remote. There's the weirdest timing, but she lands in San Francisco. <laughs> she's, sta- she's living and working out of a one-bedroom apartment. Uh-huh. And at some point, I'm just like, if you can't even leave your house, just come stay with me. So she ended up coming, mm-hmm. and she's been living with me for the last five weeks. And so now I, now I eat three times a day rather than once <laughs> a day when I was cooking. So that's so nice. You're, so you're sheltering in place with your mom. Yeah, I'm sheltering in place with my mom, and it's, we're having a great time. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I miss a lot of things that I had before. But you know, one of those weird things is you also realize not everything you had you needed, right? And right. W- the main thing you need are your relationships with the people who really care about. You don't need all the other stuff. And so it's been a pretty, but I'll also say that um, with the exception of only a couple days for nine weeks in a row, I probably worked from 8 a.m. to midnight every single day, Monday through Sunday, no breaks. And so it's been 24-7. So I've had not a lot of time to do anything else. It turns out when you're a CEO of a travel company and you're about to go public and there's a pandemic, you're going to basically be working 18 hours a day for like nine weeks in a row. It turns out like that is a really hard thing to deal with. All right. Were you ever worried it's going to... Uh, my feeling when I was talking with Scott was it's a great product and therefore it will not die. But yeah. because great products tend to... You oh. know, Thank you so much, Kara. Correct, but it does. It, it matters how you execute it. Certainly, yeah. you can die if you don't execute it. Have, have you been worried at all about that? There's been some I've seen that, like, oh, is Airbnb going to go yeah. under? And this, yeah, and that. there's a lot of people uh, talking there. 
it was super weird to go from like everyone's talking about how successful you were and like amazing on top of the world. And, you know, and I said this before, like, and my dad told me, um, you know, um, things are never as good as they seem and they're never as bad as they seem. I think Jeff Bezos once said, today's poster boys, tomorrow's pinata. And I got a good lesson in that. I went from feeling like I was super cool to all of a sudden like facing the abyss. Will we go under? Can I save the company? All this stuff, which is frankly, I was never as good as people ever said I was. You know, we were never as on top of the world as, and we weren't as bad as some people thought before. The truth was always like it always is in life, a little bit in mm-hmm. between those two things. Right. I was never concerned. I had an unrelenting optimism. I think, I, I think by the way, you got to kind of be a little crazy and a little optimistic to think that it's a good idea for strangers to live together and to start a company based around that idea. So, I mean, I am inherently an optimistic person, but I believed in myself and I believed in our team. And again, part of the reason I believed in us is because people believed in us. And I kind of try to go back to some basic principles. Are people going to never live leave their homes again? Is this a new reality? And is it never leave our homes? And I thought to myself, that seems completely implausible. They're going to leave their homes. And in fact, the longer we're locked in our homes, the more we want to get out, but we don't want to get an airplane right away. And also, do people want to kind of connect with one another, connect to communities, live locally? And I thought that's not going away. I mean, these are desires. We don't, you don't have to market travel. Travel is an inherent need. The idea of connecting one another, that's hardwired in us. And I said, so long as we're like, as long as you're doing a business, that people have always wanted and always will want, like the fundamental needs, you're going to be okay. And I said, the only thing that will determine whether we survive or don't survive is us. It's not going to be this idea. It's going to be us. And in a crisis, you have a moment in truth. And Andy Grove was the founder of Intel and you know, you know about him. And he had mm-hmm. this wonderful quote. He said, bad companies are destroyed by a crisis. Good companies survive a crisis, but great companies are defined by a crisis. And I always wanted to be the kind of company that was defined by a crisis. And I told our team at the outset, this is our moment of truth. People are going to realize, are we for real? Or are we kind of like just riding momentum this entire time? Because it's easy when like growth is up and to the right to be sloppy and like stumble your way to success. I said, this is our true moment and we're going to be defined by this. And so I said, it's all about how we adapt. And, you know, in a crisis, those that survive aren't always the toughest. They're not even always the smartest, but they are the most adaptable. Mother nature rewards those that are adaptable and resilient. And I said, we're going to be malleable and we're going to be, we're going to move fast. We're going to act with our principles. And if, so long as people root for us and they want us to exist, we probably will exist. And I think at the end of this crisis, we, uh, I think we were able to kind of come out the other side because I think there were so many people that were supporting us. All right, Brian, I think I'm going to end on that note. I was going to say, good thing your party problem is solved. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for thank coming you, on this show. You can follow me, although maybe it's not. I just was walking down New Street and people were partying. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Brian, where can people find you and Airbnb in line? You're on, you're on Twitter. At B. Chesky, C-H-E-S-K-Y. Okay, and Airbnb is at Airbnb. At Airbnb. If you like this episode, do you remember when everyone was worried about your logo, that it, what it looked like? It would look anyway, like, sorry. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm I managed, that was your problem. I know, that was my problem. I'm, but by the way, Kara, you tried to design a logo that looks like every private part in one icon. It's really hard. Uh, okay, you did a good job, though. <laughs> if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And Brian, thanks for taking so long. I know you're oh, in yes. the middle of a lot. Thank I'll you. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.